I didn't have any idea that I would last long enough to amass enough numbers to get into a Hall of Fame with these special players. I've, I'm living in this city now. I'm playing music around this town. You guys have made me feel like this is my hometown now. And uh, I just really appreciate the people that I've touched in, in this city, everything that you guys have done for me. When I go around town, whether it's a grocery store or uh, playing a show, I have conversations with people and they tell me how their grandmother was watching me pitch and she had never watched baseball before. And it makes me feel like that in some way that I've contributed to this town. That was B- Bronson Arroyo about a month ago as he was inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame along with Danny Graves and uh, former Reds general manager Gabe Paul. Of course, the Reds are awaiting the Toronto Blue Jays. The Blue Jays are probably in Cincinnati right now. Have today off. They will open a three-game series against the Cincinnati Reds. And um, one of the kind of cool stories this year around baseball has been... I don't know if I'd say the rebirth of the Reds, but certainly you could the say re- that. probably the re. Okay, I'll yeah. say that the rebirth yeah. of the Reds, and and as I've said, as someone who covered the Montreal Expos for years and years and years, and remembers going to Cincinnati, going to Riverfront Stadium to cover games, um, it's a great. It is a great baseball city. When when it's tremendous when the Reds are a big deal, yeah, it is hopping. It's really one of the must. It's one of the must stop locations when the Reds are doing really well. And uh, we're very pleased to be joined by Bronson Arroyo. Bronson, thank you so much for joining Kevin Barker and Jeff Blair. I've got Mr. Barker to the left of me, as I said at the start of the show. Uh, great major league career you had, considering Barker was your teammate <laughs> at one point. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are teammates for uh, yeah, 2009, but... Uh, you know, a lot of good times going on back then and, and, and some quality baseball. Hey, B, I had, I had no idea that whenever I was trying to hit the ball in the pond in spring training off of you, until I started looking up your numbers with the Reds, dude, you're really good. Like, I, <laughs> like I had no – I got to be honest with you. When I started looking this up and I saw in the nine years that you were with the Reds that you had one 240-inning pitched year – you had eight out of the nine that you threw over 200 innings. The one you didn't was 199 innings. You had at least 32 starts in all of the nine years. You threw 12 complete games over the nine years. And this is the most important one because I have listened to you talk and I have talked to you about this, and this is a big deal for you. In the 279 starts as a Red, you threw 166 quality starts. And I got to ask you, dude, seriously, you threw the kitchen sink. It wasn't like you were throwing a hundo. And in that little old tiny park, how did you do all that, dude? Yeah, I know, man. It was, uh, you know, it was an unorthodox style of, of pitching, as you know. But, you know, pitching backwards a little bit, just having the ability to, to, to find ways to get the, the bat off the meat of the ball, you know, off the big part of the bat and try to keep guys hitting the ball soft. And, and you know, part of the whole thing was, too, is, is just making people feel uncomfortable. And I just kind of threw such a, a different array of pitches at people in different counts that they weren't used to seeing it. It made them think a lot. It gave me the opportunity to kind of make people feel 
on the defense, even though I was only throwing 86, 87 miles an hour a lot of times. And, you know, when you look at my skill set, you know, it, it kind of lines up with a guy like Josh Towers, who who you yeah. guys have had there in, in Toronto back in the day, and we played in the minor leagues together. And you probably would have thought my career would have gone about like Josh's. You know, I'd be a swing guy out of the bullpen, starting rotation a little bit, but maybe only get a few years in the big league level and be like a really quality minor league guy. But, you know, I found a way through craftsmanship and do this mental chess match to be able to beat people for a long time in the game. Okay, I know you're around the Reds a ton, and, and I just found out by listening to that that now you live in Cincy, and there's a bunch of a young pitchers that are on this staff. Green, Lively, Liddell, Liddello, Abbott, and I looked it up. The Reds are 24th in quality starts, right? And doing it in that little small park is not the easiest thing. I, it's you got to trust stuff, right? you got to... You know, you got to do it with some authority and some fastball counts to say, here it is. Let's see if you can hit it kind of thing. Is there any piece of advice that you're telling these dudes to say whatever they need to hear to pitch well in that park? Well, you know, when I have conversations with the guys these days, sometimes it kind of butts up against the idea of, of, of how they are using the bullpens, you know, because when I, when I talk about, you know, you say I've had 166 quality starts in that time, you know, how did you do that? A lot of it was the fact that I didn't have to pitch at max effort, right? Because I was always thinking about how to get deep in the ball game. And so if I could get outs with less effort and I didn't have to step on the gas pedal, not only was it going to keep me healthy so I could continue to go out there every fifth day, but it was going to give me an opportunity to get deep in a ball game, which is where you find your wins and where you find your quality starts. And now with the way that teams use their bullpens and they're pulling guys after five and a third all the time it's very difficult to get deep in the game but if you look at a guy like Abbott you know he pitches a little bit more old school he's kind of not overpowering he's 92 93 he knows how to move the ball around the zone he has an idea how to pitch and he also has this kind of quiet confidence to him that he brings to the table and and, you know all of these subtleties really make you who you are as a player and sometimes the skill set is not the only answer and so you know when I go in a lock in that locker room and I talk to a guy like Ashcraft who's just throwing it 95 to 97 and it's sinking and cutting all over the place Mm -hmm. you know I don't have a whole lot to add to the table (laughs) except for maybe you know mentally how he prepares himself and so we do have conversations but it can be in a variety of ways because everybody's skill set is so different yeah I, I, one more before i let jeff jump in here H- how about the longevity of a season right it's those all those innings and i mentioned those 200 innings pitched how you do it right it's not how you start it's how you finish is there a piece of advice you're giving those guys because i have read with the reds that they're thinking about a six-man rotation that's because of innings and just how do you do it? Like, it's a lot, right? Trying to figure it out and elevated fastballs and no fastball counts like you just mentioned. Any piece of advice for a young pitcher that would try and be this time of the year to be as good now as he was, say, in April and May? Yeah, I, for me, it's about the off season. about, um, you know, I used to just take October off if we weren't in the playoffs, and I'd start playing catch on November 1st and re- throw really, really easy all through November, just nice, easy catch, 60, 70, 80 feet. But if you can go into spring training and feel like you're in top shape because you've been playing catch all the way since November, it gives you the opportunity to kind of ride through some of the pitfalls of a regular season. Because if you go in and you think you're in shape, let's say with guys like Homer Bailey back in the day or a Matt Latos, 
They start playing catch January 1. They come to camp. They feel great. But all of a sudden, boom, you get that quick hiccup in April or during spring training where you get down on the disabled list for a little bit. You almost are starting back at zero. You need your entire season from the time spring training starts to the very end to look like a gradual incline. And so that gives you the ability to stay healthy. And in August and September, you still feel strong. If you're going to come out of the gate too hot and not in, totally in shape, and then you have to stop at any point during the season on the disabled list or the IL, it, it totally disrupts what I used to do in the game. And so I usually tell guys, start throwing Throw more often with less intensity. If you, if, I can, if you have more volume and less intensity, you're going to have the, have the ability to stay healthy and, and have a season be go a lot smoother. That's cool. Bronson, would you, not, knowing that you live in Cincinnati now, I look back to a couple of off-seasons ago where there seemed to be an awful lot of tension between Reds' ownership and the fan base um, for a variety of reasons. It, it, it seems now as if, you know, the, with the resurgence of this team, that that's been been smoothed over a bit. As somebody who's who's played in that city and lives in that city and, and is a baseball fan, you know, how worried were you about where things were, and how excited are you about where things are now with this team? Yeah, you know, it seems like winning winning solves all all problems. You know, and and I have been around the last couple of years, and I've had good conversations with Phil Castellini about the state kind of of the union here. And and honestly, if this year would have gone really, you know, bad early on, I felt really really terrible about about the way the Cincinnati Reds are being viewed in the city. You know, and and the part of it is the fact that you know when you when you make trades for guys that you think you know are a mainstay on a team like a like a Eugenio Suarez, you get rid of a guy like. Like that, and you think like, or you get rid of a winker, and you say, "Man, these guys were doing pretty good." Like, what are we doing? Not knowing that there's guys coming from the minor leagues in the pipeline in these trades that are going to do hopefully some good things in the future. And this is the first time in about 15 years that you're seeing those trades actually come to fruition at the big league level and kind of bring this resurgence back to the city. And now you've got guys who we had never heard of, you know, coming into this season that everybody is buying their jerseys around town and just really excited. I mean, the places it is worlds different than it was the last five years now to go near that ballpark and to feel the vibe inside the place. How how different is Joey Votto now than he was, say, 10, 12 years ago? Yeah, he's you know he's opened up for sure. You know, I mean, his skill set is slow, slowly declining as as we all do as yep. we're creeping towards forty. But you know, as your as your skill set is going down, your mind is kind of opening up. You're becoming a little bit more accessible to the young guys. You're trying to lead a little bit more. You're being more vocal inside the locker room. You know, he's trying to lead by example, and you and you feel it. You know, when you're the guy who's 38 years old in the locker room, and you know people look at you as that person who you used to be. Sometimes the only thing you can contribute is what comes out of your mouth because you're not going to hit 40 homers anymore. And, and um, you know, he's becoming a better, a better, a better teammate and um, somebody that, you know, people have enjoyed, I think, more and more as time has gone on. Bronson, is it hard for a, well, we can say probably a future Hall of Famer, to go through the end of his career with a, I don't want to say rebuilding, that's probably the wrong word, a, a surging, young, athletic sort of guys trying to take your job. Is that a tough thing to do? 
Not not in this case. I mean, it might be for, for somebody maybe who has a bigger ego or maybe just hasn't been through some, some bad teams. You know, if that's happening to a guy who's been on the Yankees and they've been in the playoffs every year, yeah. then maybe there's some jealousy there. But as far as Joey Votto, this team here has infused him with energy that he hasn't had in a long time. Honestly, you couldn't have picked a better time to, for Joey to be on a team like this and him feeling like he can kind of hang on to the team a little bit and can ride their coattails a pinch and not have to lead the charge. And you've heard him say that a few times this year out of his mouth is that he feels like he's in a different world than he's ever been in a team that has speed that plays defense you know he feels like he's playing in a minor league locker room again the way we felt back in double a and triple a when you're hanging with the boys and everybody's young and kind of a reckless abandon and he he hadn't felt that in a long time in that locker room and i think it's um i think it's going to extend his career even if it's only for another year but i believe if they would have had a terrible season this year there's a chance that joey might not have played again in your mind what are the reds organization trying to be a pitchy a pitch first team or a athletic young hitter first team you know it's it's been pitching as long as I've been a part of this organization, yeah. since 2006 that I've paid attention to this club, it was always the five-man rotation that kept this team alive. It, it got us to the playoffs. Our bullpen was pretty good, and the, and the hitting was intermittent. It was super hot at times, and just too many guys swinging and missing to really win a World Series. And this is a different ball club. This is defense. This is speed. This is put the ball in play. We don't hit a ton of home runs. You know, that's what they've shown for most of this season. The pitching is actually, you know, behind a pinch, and they're catching up now. You're hoping that Lodolo comes back, and that Hunter Green comes back and they can infuse this team and get them into the playoffs and win this division. But I think it's a more balanced attack, and it's been it's been really fun to watch. And if they could just get a couple of guys to help out on the rotation going down the stretch here, it should be fun. Yeah, you know, Bronson, I, I've been lucky through friendship with Jeff Horrigan to get to spend some time with uh, the Dropkick Murphys and Ken Casey. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, I know you were with the Red Sox, is, is that where your love of music, I, I'm going to rephrase that, not your love of music, but is, is that where, where, where kind of your musical roots maybe, maybe started to flourish? Because there's, there, it's always seemed to me that there's been a real connection between the Boston music scene and the Red Sox. And I know that you were, I think it was 2005, you were traded uh, from Boston to Cincinnati. But but was that kind of the genesis of the whole music thing? And, and where are you now in terms of your musical career? Yeah, you know, music was was creeping on me since uh, being in the minor leagues with the Pirates. I picked up an acoustic guitar. I started playing. But it really didn't flourish until I got to Boston. And part of that was the fact that the fan base is so rabid there that they gave me the opportunity to stand on a stage with an acoustic guitar and sell out a 2,000-seat theater when I didn't know what I was doing at all. And, you know, I'd sit there with a guy on a saxophone and somebody on congas and we'd play two hours of cover songs. And my high school buddies would come to these shows and be like, what's going on, bro? We didn't even know you played music and all these people are showing up tonight, you know, but, but Boston had such an underground music scene that loved the Red Sox and vice versa. And we got the opportunity to play places like the hot stove, cool music for Theo Epstein and Peter Gammons over the years and gave me a real introduction to what it was really like to be in a true rock theater, like the paradise and, and feel that energy. And that, that really kind of spawned me thinking more, not just playing around a campfire for your friends, but, but being on a stage with a full band. And so these days, I'm basically around Cincinnati. We probably play 15 to 20 shows a year. I've got a cover band here that we play everything from the Beatles to Nirvana. Um, give you about a two-hour show, and we sleep in our bed every night. So it's kind of it's kind of the sweet spot for me. I think um, you know I put a record out in February, an original album that I wrote with another band in Los Angeles, and we're playing a few shows on that. But what you find these days is if you really want to tour. 
um, you know, it's a grind, man. And, and, and there's nobody in, in my band here. You know, I've got Jamie Aronson, who's Miley Cyrus's guitar player. And I've got, you know, Tom Morello's drummer from Rage Against the Machine. And, and um, these guys, they've been playing their whole lives. And so for me to say, hey, man, let's get in the van and go tour around the country <laughs> like we're an A-ball again is not going to happen. So, um, you know, I kind of enjoy as much as I can out of the music and kind of a bunch of different scenes. Sometimes it's just an acoustic guitar playing in a small uh, theater, and sometimes it's playing, you know, on a big stage, but it's not always the same. How, how important was being able to play the guitar for you in terms of filling time during your career? Because pitchers do have a lot of downtime. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of yeah. travel in baseball. How important? Because I vaguely – see, I remember covering doing a uh, – being in Pittsburgh to do a story in the Pirates and the Reds were in. And I seem to remember you coming in on a Sunday afternoon with a big old guitar case as, as part of the, uh, uh, you know, as, as part of sort of the equipment that, that, that the Reds were taking with them. Yeah. Um, how important was that for you just in, in terms of your life, just being able to do that while you were chilling between starts? Yeah, it was, you know, I, I was always a guy who really, you know, anxiety and, and, pressure and stuff like that didn't bother me a whole lot, but it was just really, really enjoyable to have an outlet. You know, some guys can kind of dig into the Xbox or really love video games. And I, I kind of put that down when I was 16 and started driving a car and thinking about girls. And, and the guitar was, was something that um, I could take with me on the road. And it, it didn't matter if you just picked it up for five minutes a day, or if you played for two hours at night across the street, cause you got your butt kicked against the brewers that night, you know, <laughs> either way it was, it was, it was something that felt like an outlet. It felt creative. It felt like it was hard. It was, it was, it was a bit of a grind. And, you know, when we play the game, when you play baseball to the highest level, you know, for a long period of a time in your life, it, it's, it's almost um, a super letdown to not have something on the backside of that, right? It's, it's hard for people to understand that the day you win the World Series and you stand at the top of the mountain, you just want to play another game. Like you think mm. that the reward is, is winning the championship, but the reward is the grind just before you get to the top. And so music has given me the ability to do that now during the game and after the game to have something to work on, to keep my vocal in shape, to try to learn, peel back all the layers of what it's like to be a good stage performer and give, give people a show um, that they can go home and, and be proud of. And so, um, you know, it, for me, honestly, it's been, uh, it feels like the meat and potatoes of my life ever since I picked up a guitar, I mean, outside of baseball. B, I can remember whenever I was hanging out with you, I, 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 how much fun I had just talking baseball and, and you telling me your side and how I looked on the on-deck circle and just little ins and outs. And it seems like listening to you talk about the Reds and being around the players, you're having fun. Like, that's pretty cool. Any aspirations of being a, dare I say, a manager or a pitching coach, something? It just seems like you might be wasted not giving that to baseball players. I know. I, I, and honestly, I, f I feel terrible about it, to be honest with you, because I say all the time, if I could rip myself into three of, of three Bronson Royals, I without question would want to be a big league pitching coach. I mean, when I sit in the locker room with a Gabe, Gabe Kapler or, or David Ross and just think what it'd be like to be, you know, a pitching coach for the Cubs or just, just hanging out, as you know, at the boys club is nothing better, but no. you know, I, I dedicated so much of my life from age, you know, probably from 1982 until I was 40 years old is is a good 30 something years of being in the weight room and, and thinking about baseball. And, and as you know, to really do it right, you've got to give 
almost 10 months of your, of your year. And it's just so time consuming that at this point, I don't feel like I'm ever going to migrate, migrate that, that way full time. But I, I do, I do sometimes feel like, uh, I, I don't have as many opportunities as I would like to talk about strategy of the game and how differently I think about the world and, and, and try to impart that upon people. But when I'm in the locker room, I do do that. You know, I, I pop in to the Reds locker room with an acoustic guitar. Sometimes I plug in and I just start playing for an hour. And then we have small, subtle conversations with guys. And, you know, Barker back then I was carrying a flip phone and <laughs> part of that thing was just happening. Part of that whole deal was just was having a conversation with a young guy about saving some money, right? Absolutely. And, and these, these things mean so much, and sometimes I, I don't have as much time as I wish I could to kind of impart that upon Major League Baseball. Wow. Bronson, listen, it was great talking yeah. to you, man. Really appreciate your time. Uh, you know, I'll, I mean, all kidding aside, congratulations yeah. on, a, on a terrific career, and it, it, we're, we're, it, we're happy to see that things are going so well for you and that uh, post-playing days it's gone well. Yeah, and, I miss you, man. Hopefully, I'll see you soon. I appreciate it. Take care. Bart, you. Tell, tell your wife I said hi. I absolutely do. You too. All right. Later, guys. See you. See Bronson Arroyo, uh, Reds pitcher member of the Reds Hall of Fame, World Series champion cool, with the man. Red Sox in 2004. Yeah, and it's interesting because oh. that, that, I mean, that Red Sox, that 2004 Red Sox team, first of all, was just so much fun to cover as a visiting writer. They had so many different personalities. But yeah, that when the Red Sox started to take off and win World Series again, there was a real, like, the connection between the Boston. Well, you know, Hazel will tell you because she she was at Nesson. The yeah. correction, the the connection between the Boston music community, which is just massive, and the Red Sox. You know, uh, song Tessie that the Dropkick Murphys cut. You now Johnny Damon and a couple of writers and a couple other players. Went in the studio and sang backup on it just, just for giggles. Yeah, uh, there's always been that that connection, and and I know Peter Gammons, a longtime Red Sox beat writer, started a thing called Hot Stove uh, Cool Music in the winter, and basically what it was, it was a fundraiser. I think it was for the Jimmy Fund. It was a fundraiser where a bunch of baseball people uh, would get together. Uh, they they they'd host a concert at one of the theaters in Boston. It'd always sell out, and they'd have uh, you know, I think maybe even some of the dudes from Aerosmith would show up every now and then and play at it. But um, it, it was just this whole, and Theo Epstein was there and involved in it. There's this whole sort of music baseball community in Boston. And um, I know from doing some reading, one of the things, you know, when Bronson was traded from Boston to, to Cincinnati, I think it was for Wiley Mo Pena, the deal, or Willie Mo Pena, sorry, yep, yep. Uh, was, the tra- was the trade. And one of the things he was kind of like, he was moving away from this and he was sort of wondering how that was going to, how he was going to be able to carry that on in Cincinnati. But man, it, I mean, he and Cincinnati were like a match made in heaven. Yeah. You know? Cause yeah. he's got that. He's the dude. I think he was born in Key West, right? He's got that kind of that every guy vibe. He's Bronson. It's like the Arroyo final piece with, for a championship team in my mind. That's and a, Bronson Arroyo would show every, up at a party or something like that. And he'd be the dude that would fit look, in and look, have fun. Look, it's Bronson. Everybody, yeah. everybody hush. He's going to, you know, he's got his guitar and he's going to, when he starts picking it, it's gonna everybody's gonna listen because he's cool and yeah. you know he's got that cool voice. I don't know. It's just he just like yeah. I, from the first time I met him, it was hey dude. Like it was not. I had to introduce myself. It was none of that. Like it was just it was me, him, and and I was trying to 
Seriously, I was trying to hit the ball as far as I could possibly hit it, and he was flipping 69-mile-an-hour breaking balls to try to get me to spin my myself in the ground because that's who he was. And I just it's interesting to hear how he went about trying to throw 200 innings. Again, he wasn't doing it with 95. No. He was doing it with 88 and a kitchen sink and, you know, whatever, reading bats and keeping it in the, in the ballpark. And Great American Small Park's not the easiest you know, thing, thing to do it in. So, yeah, he was... You know, my memory everything rolled in one. Yeah, my memories of Bron- Bronson Arroyo when he's pitching for the Red Sox is just pitching to some god awful cold, windy weather in the, the, the stri- fall. The straight and leg nothing. wind up, yeah, just exactly. Flipping it in there and, the, and like nothing. It's oh, just it's a all, grind. It was and, cool. and you're different right. arm angles and when you look at his, you know, look at his 383 major league starts, 213 quality starts, and you mentioned all the the innings pitched. Yeah, um, just and, with the Reds, I mentioned and and, and the Reds, and he also he. He could handle the bat a little bit, could he not? As a as, as a pitcher, uh, uh, yeah, he could handle the bat a little bit. I mm. thought he was one of those dudes that could handle the bat a little bit. No, I asked the wrong guy. I mean, I think he thinks he could, but I'm sure he thinks he could. Yeah, yeah. It was it was interesting hearing him talk about having the flip phone and always and be talking to a young guy about like taking care of money. He talked to me stuff. about that. He talked to me that he's the only big leaguer I know that would rather go to Subway than go to. Ruth Chris. By the way, he has six career home runs. Thank you, Andrew. Oh, it's like he's hitting like 150, though. Six career. He's going to pull it up. Dude, six career. 129. Yeah, yeah. So he's all or nothing. That's all right. There have been times that he could hit clean up for the Blue Jays with six home runs and a 129 average. They've had worse. I'm sorry. You walked right into, but no, he uh, talked about I being did. like helping out the young young guys and taking care of money and stuff like that. That's what I mentioned about the being a coach. I mean, some guys are just wasted. It's, you know, he would be a really good manager because he's a good talker, right? He could talk Mm -hmm. fans off the, off the ledge. It's it's sort of what they're supposed to do, right? You know, even kill Hunter. It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? Don't get too high. Don't get too low. Always stay in the middle. And he's captain cool. Like he could look cool sitting in front of the microphone, saying it the way it's supposed to be said. But there is that part of it where. All the innings and the way I did it and the routines off the field and what I did in the offseason to throw 200 innings and and preaching that to a kid on an everyday basis and having that if you're a kid to walk up to and ask how you do this. How did you do it with the kitchen sink and not velocity? Tell me. Tell me how you add and subtract fastballs. Tell me that, right? I'd rather, when in doubt, throw 84 instead of trying to throw 89. It's that kind of thing. And You know what else, though? There's also something to be said. There's also something to be said. For having a major league career, a long career, taking yourself seriously as a pitcher and as an athlete, but having fun and 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 being able to enjoy. I no, I mean that oh, seriously. I can remember being uh, being able man, to enjoy everything that comes with many it times, and not let it affect your performance. Many times, well, I mean, you're established, guys. Once you're established, it's a little it's a little different. But it's walking the young guys off the plank, and it's coming on the bus with your guitar and and singing and playing that thing. When you just like he said, got your butt kicked against the Brewers, which that rivalry when I played was a thing. Yeah, I mean, you're you know, uh, Cueto was trying to drop kick dudes with with cleats on, like it was a thing. Well, we talked about the central. And we stunk. And- but we we, we talked about the central. There was a time where you know, <laughs> yeah. Cincinnati, I mean, yeah. Joey Votto, used to, uh, we almost start riots in, Absolutely. In, in Chicago. Made it None of those teams liked each yeah. other very yeah. much. Like you knew somebody threw, uh, stood somebody up. Like you got ready. Yeah, like watched. it was coming. And just him coming on a bus and playing guitar and making it fun. And like it's, yeah, I don't it's, know. That's uh, a great conversation. There's, there's only one him. 
yeah, that's. I'll great, say it that way. It, it it was a great conversation that I've ever met. That was a real good job oh, setting great. that up, he's both great. you and Mark. I uh, I didn't I do anything. It. it was all Mark. Yeah, it was a good job setting it up, Mark. That was a fun conversation. Uh, Steve Sparks is a Houston Astros radio broadcaster, former knuckleball pitcher. Uh, the focus, I guess, if you're the J- a Jays fan now, your focus obviously is going to be on Bronson Arroyo's Reds and the Jays. Uh, because of that three-game series coming up. But I don't know, man. Big weekend series between the Astros and the Mariners. It's got some wild-card implications for the Blue Jays. I, I guess. I know John Schneider told the writers yesterday, I'm not looking at the scoreboard now. Well, we'll look at the scoreboard. We'll, we'll look at the you. scoreboard and the standings for you, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah th- at this point of the year. That's a manager's job. Yeah. Even kill. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And that's why they rely on the rest of us to overreact to We stuff. will do that for them. So we'll be watching Seattle and the Astros this weekend as well. Steve Sparks joins us. We'll talk about that series. Talk about the impact that Justin Verlander has had on the Houston Astros. I still, I don't care what the standings say. I just, and it's weird because the Jays handle that team pretty well. I still don't know if I'd want to run into the Astros. The postseason. Kyle Tucker scares you a little. Kyle Tucker in that ballpark scares me a ton. Steve Sparks is next. It's Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590. The Fan, the Sportsnet Radio Network, and Sportsnet. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Blair and Look at your pen, it came apart. The other, there you go. <laughs> Welcome back to Blair and Barker on uh, uh, Sportsnet 590 Fan, the Sportsnet Radio Network. And Sportsnet. I don't know why it gives keep, me pleasure. What, what do you tell me all the time? When bad things happen to you, it makes what, me smile. What do you tell me all the time? Like the keep, your eyes, keep your eyes on your own paper. That's what you tell me all the time. Keep your eyes on your own paper. Uh, unless you want to laugh at somebody, then you look at them. <laughs> uh, hey, the uh, Seattle Mariners are uh, half a game away from the Blue Jays right now after a 6-4 well, win pl- today. They played the second-worst team in baseball. Yeah, they played uh, Kansas City. Julio Rodriguez, five hits. Cool. Five runs. Hmm. And, yes, Cal Raleigh hit a home run. You, you know, he, he's going to hit a home run. He hit a home run as well, and uh, the... Next stop for the Seattle Mariners. It's a series with implications for the Blue Jays and a couple of fronts, obviously, uh, is Houston, where they will take on the Mariners in a series beginning tomorrow night. Uh, The Astros, of course, they're in the wild card hunt as well. I would think the Astros also view the American League East division as still very much in play. West. What did I say, the East? The East could be in play for them. The American League West... (laughs) as well, very much in play there. Currently two and a half games back of the Texas Rangers. Let's bring in Steve Sparks, Houston Astros radio broadcaster. Steve, thanks for joining 
Barker and me uh, today. So for the Astros right now, the Astros focus uh, is on the Rangers, I would presume. Yes, the wild card is, I mean, very much and obviously very much in play. But I would think for Houston coming off the type of year they had, they've got designs and much higher things. And um, I would think that they've, you know, Texas has been really good this year. Texas, I think, has surprised some people given the fact that they've been able to play as well as they have with pitching injuries. Uh, what do you think that? What do you think the the Astros think right now as they they look at the the final six weeks of the season? What are they focused on? Are they focused on getting in the postseason, or do they want to get that AL West uh, title and maybe avoid the you know, uh, first round? Right. I, I think the, their eyes on the, the AL West for sure. I think there's another eye, certainly, with Seattle and Toronto fighting right now for that third wild card, but not very far behind the Astros at all. So I think for them, and they're very good at this, is they concentrate on themselves. You know, they they feel like, you know, if they play their best baseball, then in the end, they feel like with a few more games against the Rangers and six more games against the Mariners, they can take care of them, those things themselves. But they're not, they're not as good as they were last year. So, so that's, that's a bit of a problem. And when you look at the starting pitching right now compared to what it was this time last year, it's not as sharp. Steve, give me one of the most important people on the pitching side of the ball and one of the most important players on the everyday side of the ball. Yeah, you know, I get that quite a bit, Mark. It's, it's uh, Chris and Javier out of the rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who right now you can you can look at numbers, but you don't really see the lack of swing and miss. And that was his calling card for the last two and a half years. Uh, opponents batted 170 against him last year, and of course, you know, with the no hitter combined in the World Series, he, he did it on a national stage where people started to really take notice. And a lot of people were picking him as a dark horse, maybe Cy Young award candidate. But man, I'll, I'll tell you what: the last two months, he hasn't looked like himself at all. Uh, very little swing and miss. They used to, you know, they called that fastball the invisible above the belt, but it's either fouled or put in play and, you know, quite often put in play pretty, pretty well. So uh, they got to get him right, you know, to really uh, feel good about their top three and their rotation. And on the offensive side, for me, it's Jose Abreu. I think, I think there's starting to be uh, a little bit of talk with, Guys like McCormick coming into his own with an OPS above 900 now. Uh, Altuve missed a lot of the season, two and a half months. Just until about two weeks ago, Jordan Alvarez and Jose Altuve only played 13 games together the entire season. So to have two guys like that that are as prolific as they are uh, offensively, to have them back and pretty fresh, really, for the last two months of the season is going to be huge. But for me, it's Jose Abreu. You know, uh, what's he going to, what's he going to do? What's he going to be this last month of the season? He's got a couple of shots in his back about a week ago. He comes off the IL probably in a week to 10 days. And are you going to have a different Jose Abreu? Was it the back that was causing him so much consternation uh, this entire season or or what? We, We just haven't seen him consistently drive the baseball like we did when he was a member of the White Sox. What are the expectations for Justin Verlander? You know, to step up there, he's so accomplished and to, to pitch to a game plan and execute 
still, you know, you guys know this very well. There's not very many pitchers, right-handers mostly, that command the baseball to their glove side, that fastball to the glove side. And he does that as well as anybody has in the last 20 years. And when there's a lefty in there, he can't lean out over the plate like they do typically, man. He runs that four-seamer. It stays straight and true. It has that hop, but he gets everybody uh, really cognizant of that fastball. Not only will he throw a fastball to a fastball hitter, he'll bully that guy with that fastball. So, you know, he gives them a little presence. You guys know that. I mean, he's an intimidator, uh, but he's somebody that, uh, along with Frommer Valdez, you feel good about that one-two punch at the top of the, of the rotation right now. Why is Kyle Tucker so good? Yeah, he's just coming into his own. It's been going on since the pandemic season. I mean, it's just slowly getting better and better. But I think the thing that, you know, not a lot of people uh, really know for sure is he's hitting about 330 against left-handed pitchers, you know, and he's, he's done this his entire career. And he, you know what he credits that to is his brother played for the Astros, Preston Tucker, and he's been around the league for a little bit. Uh, he was left-handed, and, and then playing wiffle ball in the backyard growing up. He so that wiffle ball is right here all the time. You know, he's he's used to that that low angle in the ball coming in. But uh, he does everything you want. You know, he, he plays a real. He's a great route runner. He's an accurate thrower. Uh, he's a great base dealer. His his base dealing uh, percentage is under. I think he's twenty-four for twenty-seven this year. Uh, you know, he's great first to third. He's, he does all the little things. And, and not only that, you know, he, he's got the ability to protect Jordan Alvarez now. Uh, Dusty Baker, you know, if he, like, if he does bat those two back-to-back, he doesn't like to bat Tucker in front of Alvarez. He likes the other way around because he wants Tucker to feel free to steal second base and the other team not just go ahead and walk Jordan Alvarez after that. He wants them to continue to be aggressive. So he's... He's Jordan's protector, and that's going to make Alvarez better. Uh, Steve, you would know this. Every hitter has a reason why they do every single little thing that they do at the plate. Now, obviously, you know Kyle Tucker does a little arm bar, bar thing at the end of his swing. Mm-hmm. Why does he do that? Like, what what does that accomplish for him? You know, people tell me when you break it down, and it gets really slow, Kevin, it, it, it doesn't look as long as it does in free form. Like, what you're seeing is something that looks long, uh, especially to get to the inside pitch. But he's got great clearance. And, you know, uh, when you're able to post on that front leg and clear space for those hands to, to get way inside by your rib cage, it doesn't matter if, you're, if you've got an arm bar with that, that stiff front arm or not. I mean, he's really efficient to be able to get his hands swipe across his body to keep that ball fair down the line with power. Uh, and it's because of his lower half. You know, I just think he's quick down there. Uh, and I think he's solid down there. And you know those drifters have a hard time getting to that inside pitch because they have no way to clear their hands inside of on that path. Yeah, Steve, you, you talked a little bit about the the starting pitching and about Christian Javier, the pitching in general. We started the year. I think mm-hmm. a lot of us looked at Hunter Brown as a guy who was going to have to be important, a Rookie of the Year candidate. I don't know how many people picked up on JP France. What what has he meant to this team? And and what's been the key to his success? Because I look at his numbers. You know, we saw uh, Tanner Bybee here, and we're, we're raving about him. This guy's numbers are right mm-hmm. there. They are right there. So the Astros have had a, a top five rookie of the year vote getter in eight of the last nine years. Yeah. And, and we were thinking maybe Hunter Brown could make it nine out of ten. Jeremy Pena 
finished fifth last year and, and he was in the, the top five. So um, what makes him so good? I'll, I'll say this. I didn't see it coming. And, you know, when you look at his pitches, they look okay. But if you've ever been in, in a dugout and you've heard hitters talk about some, some dude's got a slide step change up, <laughs> you know, they freak out about that. Right. So and here's the, pre- here's the premise. When a guy slide steps and throws a change up, the hitter kind of jumps back out at the pitcher, right? And that's what, why the changeup is so effective. JT France does that in every single one of his deliveries. He just jumps at the hitter. And I think it's his delivery that he revamped during the pandemic. He just thought, man, I got to get down the mound quicker to let my arm, you know, to get my arm to speed up and to catch up and get more sharpness on my pitches. He was so average. He was 89, 91 miles for nothing really stood out. But when he did that, his, his pitches got more crisp. But I think more than anything else, I think it's, it's a pitcher who basically has a slide step changeup effect with every single one of his deliveries, whether it's his cutter, his slider, his changeup, his fastball, whatever it is. I think everybody is just about off stride as a hitter. And by the time you bat three times, you're going, oh my gosh, I cannot square this guy out. I just can't get comfortable with him. Steve, where do you think Dusty will show up the most here down the stretch for the team? Well, I mean, he's, he's really good. I mean, you, you know, he's such a astute people person. Yeah. He recognizes that he recognizes, you know, just somebody's gate, you know, somebody coming out of the batter's box differently. He's got, he's probably taking just like snapshots in his mind. He can see things a little differently than we all, all can because he's been doing this since the late sixties. So to be able to do that and get guys off their feet when they need to, uh, to watch a pitcher and, and and have a conversation. I'll tell you something he does with Hunter Brown. Hey, he does he does something like this with just about everybody on his roster. He's taken him fishing at least five times, and they'll go out there for four or five hours, and they will talk. I mean, this is this is like a Opie Taylor and and his dad, the sheriff, <laughs> out there with some grass in their teeth and just talking about life. I said, well, what, what's up? tell me something that you gleaned from, from one of those fishing uh, experiences with Hunter. He said, well, I found out that he's got three older sisters, and they played softball, uh, and that's how he got started uh, in baseball. I said, okay, well, well, how does that help you coach him? He said, well, he's got three older sisters, and he probably didn't do crap for himself growing up, so sometimes I just got to kick him in the butt because he's not used to it. <laughs> How about that? That's awesome. I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty, That's good stuff, isn't it? That's tremendous. That's absolutely. That, that's dusty, though. That is vintage dusty. Yeah. It is. It is. And you know what, Steve? At some point in the postseason, I guarantee you that'll come in handy. There's no doubt. You know, he he, he invests in these players. He does it a lot of times with food. You know, he he'll he knows guys get homesick that that live in in Latin America. You know, and he'll he'll find a good spot around some town. We might be. In Seattle, he'll find a, a good spot and get about five takeout orders and bring them to a few of his players and stick it in their their lockers, man. And those dudes, those dudes will do anything for him. I mean, yeah. he gets the most out of them. And I don't know if it's bribing guys, but uh, he's got the magic touch as far as uh, uh, going the extra mile. Yeah, I've always felt that. You know, if you you look back at Dusty's career and you hear him talk, I, I'm sure there have been a lot of times where he was not treated well. And I guarantee you that he understands what it takes to treat people. Well, maybe more than a lot of people do from unfortunate let me, experiences. Let me tell you one, one more story about that thing. And this is sure, before please. 
this is before the pandemic hit, and Dusty was just hired after the cheating scandal. And it's early in spring training. Uh, Dusty's two two weeks into the job, and the Astros began their schedule, and they were playing in Jupiter, Florida, which is just 15 miles from West Palm Beach where they train. But batting practice was going on, and there was two of his ex-players. One of them was Kurt Manwaring, and I think the other was Rob Thompson. I'm yeah. not positive, but I know Manwaring was there. But what they did is they drove across Florida. They drove four hours across from the Gulf side to show up at the Astros batting practice to let the Astros players know uh, that they were going to put their arms around Dusty Baker and show everybody how much he meant to them during their playing career, and they've got his back in every turn. And guys noticed that. I noticed that, and I just thought, that tells you just about everything you need to know about a guy. These guys played for him 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and they're driving on a Saturday morning, uh, taking time away from their family just to go show support. They didn't even stay for the game. They just came for batting practice just to put their arms around Dusty and show the Astros players uh, what a good man he is and, and to pay attention. That's a great story. Steve. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, have fun. Appreciate it. It should be a fun series. Yeah. Take care of the Mariners. You got it, guys. All right. <laughs> we'll do our best. Take care, guys. <laughs> See you All righty. That's Steve Sparks, Astros broadcaster. I mean, I guess you could probably. But do you, do you cheer? At, at this point, okay, the Jays are about the wild card race. How do you how do you cheer during a wild card race? Because like the Astros sweep the Mariners, that's great, but it's also, you know, gonna affect the Jays because the Astros are a team the Jays are kind of looking at too. Do you always is is it always the thing where whoever helps you, whoever kicks the dudes chasing you, that's what you want. You want somebody to kick the dudes chasing you. You don't really care if you're chasing them at the same time. I would think you take care of yourself. Everything else around you will take care of itself. Because it is. How about that? It is strange. You know, if the Jays were to face the Astros somehow in the postseason, they've got good numbers against that team. Yeah, they'd have to score some runs. That would be that would be the thing, right? The the Blue Jays got good enough pitching to to beat yes. anybody. Uh, like, that, they really that do. Yeah. Uh, we got a couple of minutes left. Let's go to the back leg line, 416-413-3959. We love doing this. It's your chance to yep. leave comments or questions for Barker. Chris in Brampton. Go ahead, Chris. Chris. I, my question is for both of you. Mm. With impending comeback of Bobby Shit, would you recommend that for the rest, let's say two or three weeks, he does DH duties instead of shortstop because – I think come October, we're going to need him very fit and ready for the playoff run. Thanks again. Bye now. Yeah, that listen, that's a, something we've talked about. I'm sure the Jays have talked about it. We'll have John Schneider on tomorrow, and we'll, we'll ask John. I, here's the way I look at it. I think if Bo plays, he plays shortstop. If he needs a day off, he gets a day off. I don't want him DHing. Either you play and you're the shortstop or... If you're going to need a little load management because of the knee, then, you know, go down to the end of the dugout. Take yeah, I don't, agree with, I don't agree with that part. You think you just play every day at shortstop? I, well, I mean, if, if excuse me, if he needs a day off, you can DH him. Like, it, I just don't think routine-wise, habit-wise, mental-wise, he's prepared to do that down the stretch when all these games and his at-bats are going to matter the way they are. Don't like you think DHing would be? It's hard. 
Like oh, it's, no, it's I'm a routine saying, wise. So you're saying he basically plays shortstop every day and that's it? Uh, no, it's oh. not what I'm saying. I'm saying if he does get a day off, which I don't think will be a ton of those, it would be DHing. Like he'll play five yeah. days at short, DH one day, and then play again at short. Like it's he's, they're sprinkling in that DH day. They're not going to abuse those DH days because I'm just not sure if it's like you would have to. You'd have to really think about your routine, and that's a lot to ask. Like he's it's healthy just, enough to hit, shouldn't he be healthy enough to play every day? I'm so. sorry to play in the field. You would think so. I don't. I don't think. I don't think the field is the issue. I think it's running the bases and stopping. But that's what it is. It's that, the stopping part of it. So that okay. Well, you could do that. You could hurt yourself doing that as a DH. Well, it sounds to me like he's he's not having issues with yeah. that. We we. I mean we we had Casey Candale on, and he seemed think he was. Running like crazy. We heard Bo talk. Sounded like it was no big deal. Like there's, right, I think you got to trust Bo. This is what you do. Trust Bo. Yeah. Have the, you know, have the people that need to have a say-so in how they're going to handle it say the right thing. And whenever they do say the right thing, it, pencil his name into you can't pencil it in anymore. Let's go to Richard and Ajax. I just want to know what happened yesterday in the fifth inning and why didn't we have somebody up ready to go after the first walk? It appeared to me through the first four and a half innings that Gosman really didn't have the stuff, and that's what I call the eye test. And yet, then he walked another guy, and then all the crap happened with the air. I just don't understand why we let him go this far. Anyway, have a great day. Love the show. See ya. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, so he Kyle Schwarber went out. Kyle Schwarber walks. Alec Bohm flies out. What was the score? Uh, the Jays were winning, yes? Uh, Up four yeah, to two, two, I believe, f- until the walk and the third time through. Four the two, right. So yeah. you got to walk with two outs. Um, Nick Castellanos is up now. He's doubled off you before. I mean, the bigger question to me is, I, I think, is why you went back to back slider with Nick Castellanos, which is your third. I think he told you that on the, well, the way we yeah. led the show with that he didn't feel confident didn't in feel the confident. fastball and. That's how he was trying to get him out. Was moving all over the place yeah, I and mean, self correcting was being was a tough thing. This gets back again. This gets back to that thing where you got to lean on somebody. Your starting rotation, yeah. including him. And remember this: it's a six. It's a six man rotation, or it's not anymore. But it's a six day. Like he's got the extra day, which yeah. would allow you to raise the pitch count. He's your dude. Yeah. Uh, like you got to lean on your dude with well, the lead, it, and yeah. I, there's no way I'm going to come on here no. and fault John and yell and scream well, about why, a, why you left no, him in. And he had like somewhere in the 70 pitch range. I don't think dudes yelling and screaming, but he's, he's asking a question. I think based on the fact you got all these relievers rattling around, I get the question. Well, you I, lost because I mean, you scored four runs. I, I didn't. Um, I mean, I don't. I I didn't have a problem with it. I would. I tell you what. I think more people would have put their put their hands up and said, "What the hell are you doing, taking him out that early?" And you got to keep in mind. John Schneider talked about the playoffs, and he he took Kevin Gossman out too early in the playoffs. He knows that, so um, he's going to give he's going to give Kevin Gossman he's going to give Kevin Gossman some rope. Mm. That's um, a that's a fair question, but yeah, it's a little early. I, it's 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 Kevin. Uh, that is it for us. We will be back tomorrow from five to about six forty because it's an Apple game on Sportsnet five ninety. The fan of Sportsnet. Have yourself a great night. <laughs>